Kia ora Aotearoa, I'm Simon Bridges and welcome to this special bonus episode of Generally Famous. I didn't want to abandon you over summer so we've pulled together some of the best bits of seasons 1 and 2. They're themed around particular subjects. Today, generally well-being. I hope you enjoy this compilation. I'll be back very soon with more fantastic guests for season 3. But until then, enjoy your summer. Brody Kane. I mean, you're a serious sports person. I'm an athlete, yeah. How long have you been running? Well, I've always enjoyed running. I ran my first half marathon when I was in my early 20s. And then I kind of, in 20s, like mid-20s and that, like I'm living the dream, being a journalist and travelling and stuff. It wasn't actually until, like, I was I got into my 30s that, I, that I've started doing, like, marathons and longer distance stuff. Right. So, I don't know, I, I, I just... I just Caught the bug, really. Best time in like a marathon or half that you're proud of? Um, the the f- fastest half was an hour fifty. It's good. And the, good. and my first marathon is still my fastest, which was four fifteen. Cool. Um, but I've morphed away from giving a sure sure toss, toss no no. But time. I just was but just interested to get a sense yeah, of where yeah. we're at here. Yeah yeah. And um and so why do you do it? What I love, like I, I really enjoy running. It's kind of my my form of therapy, self-therapy and meditation because I'm not a super spiritual person. Mm-hmm. But I love, um, what I've enjoyed most about it is the mental uh, challenges that come with it. So no one run is the same and you can go out and have an absolutely shocking day. Yeah. The minute you finish though, you will always feel okay and you will always learn something from it and so what I love so much about pushing the boundaries with some of these kind of ridiculously long challenges and that that I'm doing like the Kepler challenge in December Amazing. is what's that like 60 k's yeah yeah is that it teaches you more about yourself that you can then pass on into other aspects of your life so the the the, ha- the hard days, the good days, the preparation, the looking after yourself, it all passes over into other parts of life. So that's what I love about it, is the mental toughness it can give you. Nathan Wallace. I suppose it's a sort of a not direct, because you know so much more than me, but an indirect challenge to what you're saying is, yep. if you think about the greatest people mm-hmm. uh, who've invented and created and driven change and done this yep. thing, oh, often they've had terrible upbringings. Yeah. They, they haven't had anything you're talking about or, you yeah. know, in fact, they've had the, the worst of it and you're an example yeah. of that. Yeah. And yet they have somehow, maybe it's the chip on their shoulder or both their shoulders, yep. they have achieved amazing things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't think that's, that's the, it's important to understand, because that's absolutely true, but it's important to understand that's the exception to the rule. Right. Um, most people who have experienced a traumatic child, there's way more of them in prison right now than yeah. there are having achieved those wonderful things. So I think it's multifaceted. I think some of it is those resiliency factors I talked about before. If we could study each of their lives, they might have had resiliency factors the other ones didn't have. A huge part of it's got to be 50% of your outcomes are determined at birth. So I've got nothing to do with what happened in the environment. It's your temperament. Your temperament doesn't change the rest of your life. Um, you know, sometimes those people were born to be great. And there was nothing that was going to get in the way of that. Mm. You know, I think that's possible as well. So yeah. I don't think there is a, I, you know, the stuff that I put forward is what happens most of the time because I'm actually a living contradiction to most of the stuff that I teach. Mm. So I'm well aware that it doesn't, there isn't a black and white answer. You know, I mean, that children going into childcare in the first year of life. My children went into childcare in the first year of life um, and they weren't wrecked. 
But, you know, it's still clear that there are no research-based benefits for children being in a childcare centre in the first three years of life. The right. benefits are all to the economy. Parents get upset when I say that as if I'm beating them up for putting their kids in childcare, and I'm not, because actually I put my kids into childcare. You can do things like I made sure my daughter, they would put her down for a sleep in the afternoon at the centre, and um, they stopped her having a sleep so that she wouldn't be up all night. I was like, no, keep her down for a sleep, because most of the stress comes in the afternoon to be at the childcare, and now she stays awake till 9 o'clock at night. So now I'm spending five hours a day with my two-year-old, mm. whereas if she was going for, not going for a sleep, she'd get mm. home and I'd spend an hour. So there's things that you do that you can mitigate. It's not about beating people up. That We all live in the same modern world where we have bugger all choice. And, and I appreciate it's nothing about this simple, but... Yeah. Um, in simple terms, all, if, if, if they are at home up to three with mum and dad yeah. and getting that nurturing and so on, that is better than an early childhood yes. uh, centre. Yes. But as you say, then there's sort of real life and work and all yeah. that. But it's also true to say that in a research-based way, the only children that are better off in a childcare centre in the first three years are children living in homes that's so abusive they should be removed by the right. authorities. So even the kid that's not getting the best but is, would not be removed by the authorities still yep. gets better outcomes than going to a childcare centre. So let's say they are an early childhood. Um, centre yep. and, and you I believe are an advocate for that you know what I would call free play child led environment Absolutely. Right? And, yep. and I'm sitting there as a complete lay person and I yep. say you know look it looks unorganised, chaotic. So yeah. It's like the opposite of good learning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why? What, what's actually going on there that I'm missing? Um, you're thinking that children are little seven-year-olds and the type of learning that you think that needs structure and organisation and, and transformative thinking and yeah, symbolic thinking, that you just need to start practising that when you're two. And you don't. It's not how your brain works. Before that, you have to be creative. All those people you talked about that invented new things and changed the world and stuff, I bet you they come from an early childhood where they didn't learn to read until they were seven. So their creativity was allowed to expand. What do you sort of say about drugs, both booze and, if we take the real yeah. common one, cannabis? And yeah, I was um, involved in writing submissions to uh, the government at the same time too to say to leave the drinking age of 20. This whole international organisation is called Not Until 21 because the research is clear that if you could wave a magic wand and no one drank alcohol till they were 21, 99 to 100% of our problems with alcohol would disappear. That's even our domestic violence problems and our accident emergency when the 45-year-old man goes out, has a dozen cans, wipes out his frontal cortex, loses empathy, understanding of consequence, goes home and beats up his partner, people think that's a problem with alcohol at 45. It's not. It's a problem with alcohol when he was a teenager. If he hadn't weakened his frontal cortex as a teenager with alcohol, then he wouldn't wipe out his cortex as an adult. He necessarily wouldn't lose empathy, wouldn't go home. So even all of the problems we have with alcohol are to do with the damage it does to the teenage brain. So, yeah, I would say... Cannabis? Um, cannabis the pro- is under 18. So it does problem that you lose on average eight IQ points if you smoke marijuana under the age of 18. There's no evidence you lose any IQ points if you smoke it after 18. The only other causative thing we know for sure about marijuana is it can trigger um, schizophrenia. You know, the, so you have to have the genes for schizophrenia. And there's no evidence that it triggers that after the age of 19. You know, so it's really the marijuana stuff just relates to under 18. It's damaging for the under 18-year-old. But it really does nothing after that. Let's, um, let's say that I'm a mum or dad or, you know, someone's listening here and they, mm. they are or they're an uncle or a, an aunt or wider yep. family and they've done everything wrong, yep. right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they're yep. sitting listening saying, you know, this is terrible. Yeah. Um, so whether it's them thinking about their kids or actually themselves yep. and their upbringing, yep. actually, yep. I suppose what I want to get into is your view, but I'm sure that's based on evidence mm. that, you know, you can actually change the wiring. 
it's not sort of too late. And I think yeah, the fancy absolutely. concept is is neuroplasticity. Yep. Get, get, run, mm. run me through that as a as a as just a, like um, you said, really. Concept. Just the, you know, the neuroplasticity is that brain's ability to rewire itself and to bring on board new behaviours. And we are living in the age of neuroplasticity. So just like you indicated, we know there's much more pliability than we previously thought. So yeah, you absolutely can change. Even when we talk about predicting kids' outcomes from the age of three, you know, we can predict your outcomes. Actually, when you're in your mother's womb, we can predict a lot of your outcomes. Mm. But we can predict heaps of outcomes from when you're in the age of three. It's not because you're set at the age of three. It's because most people don't have an intervention. So if you were living once or warriors or some abusive, horrible life, zero to three, the majority of those children stay living that life until they're 18. That's why we can predict their outcomes. But if you move them out of that abusive environment and you move them into a loving, caring home, absolutely the brain responds and the brain changes and typically those children will be resilient. But if I'm sitting there and I'm 25, 30, 35, and I've got a problem... It's drinking, let's say, or yeah. it's some other behavioural thing short of that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm just addicted to my iPad and I'm, yeah. you know, I'm going to. I, yeah. I don't. Well, but tell me about what does change look like for that to kind of. Is this. Is it yeah. just as simple as consistent kind of behavioural kind of. It is. It's self control. Self control right. is the key word. Self control and your brain. I mean, basically everything you do is a neural pathway in your brain. And the reason you do it automatically is because it's covered in myelin. And you could say it takes about 90 to 100 repetitions. So if I've got the self-control to get up and get out of bed 90 days in a row and go to the gym, then after 90 days it's a fairly automatic behaviour. Not change my brain, the neuroplasticity of my brain. I've got a neural pathway just as strong to say get up and go to the gym as I do to say say lying in bed. But to get those new behaviours up and running, um, it's you know like I say, they've got lots of neuroplasticity, you can do it, but you need the self-control to get your ass out of bed the 90 days in a row. I suppose it's a bit like, is it, and there's no science behind what I'm saying, but I'm just listening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit like any muscle, is it? Yeah. I, if I keep lifting the weights, yep. as you can tell, I do a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> yeah, um, sorry, sorry. You know, the same is true with my brain, that yeah. exercise, it builds the strength. It is, it is. Your brain, people tend to think that their brain chemistry dictates who they are, but I think modern science tells us who you are dictates your brain chemistry. Do you have daily regimes or things you do that you'd sort of say have come out of your learning or yep, I don't want yep, to make yep. it look like no, a weirdo here have, but I have daily <laughs> I have daily um, hassle myself that I'm not walking the talk and doing the things that I know all the right. learning is you know so I have let the gym lapse even though I know you know how beneficial that is how many endorphins it releases you know I don't let things get really bad I still walk a bit and stuff but I think we're always trying to live our higher selves and I don't pretend that I stay in my higher self all the time. I have moments of being in my higher self where I'm going to the gym and I'm eating properly and I'm cutting down on my sugar. And I have other moments where I have 12 cups of coffee a day and I put mm. three sugars in them. And, um, yeah, and I can't be bothered going to the you gym. terrible person. Yeah, I know. But I think we're all trying to get that level of self-motivation. The more you do it, the more you, um, you know, the easier it is. The more supports you have around you and the better you manage your life. You know, if I live with a whole bunch of fat, lazy alcoholics, I'm probably not going to go to the gym. (laughs) You know, if I live with motivated people, then it's more likely. So there's things you can do to increase it. But at the end of the day, it comes down to self-control. Your ability to make yourself do the shit you know is good for you, but you don't really want to do. Have you ever suffered, um, and I have no basis on which to ask Mm -hmm. this, but I just, have you ever yourself suffered from, you know, what you would call serious, um, more than just normal anxiety or depression? Anxiety, yes, but not not depression. No. What's the um, what's going on in the brain, and what's the sort of the? Um, I, I mean, I've been fascinated on this podcast yeah. alone. Right. Um, just you know, the number of people who you know, it's a really, and I, I feel very blessed that you know, I've 
mm-hmm. been depressed from time to time. I've had yeah. anxiety, but nothing that I would consider was, you know, um, yeah. at any level clinical. Yeah. A lot of people, whether successful or interesting, with it, they, they, they've really suffered from this. That, what yeah. do you say is going on? What do, what, what do you think are the basic yeah. answers? Does it come back to that neuroplasticity, does it all? Um, you know, I mean, anxiety and depression are kind of different things. I think the people that have suffered it and come back from it in some ways have an edge because now they've got the tools in place to know how to get back from there. And the more you get back from there, the stronger your brain is in some ways. It makes your brain fitter because um, you can wallow there for the longest time. But if you get out of it, it's usually because you did got up and did stuff. And the first time's the hardest. The next time will be easier. So in some ways, they've got skills that the rest of us don't have. So it's, you know, maybe better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, something mm. Um Anxiety for me is often trauma. It's people's, um, you've got brain number one is your survival brain, your brainstem, fight, fight, flight, freeze. And brain number four, that frontal cortex where all your good stuff is, they essentially work like they're on a set of scales. And if you experience early trauma, your brainstem is aroused and you go on hyperarousal because you don't know what's going to happen. You're in an unpredictable environment. It's, um, it's, it's negative. You have to stay on hyperarousal to be aware of what's going to happen. If you're being looked after by your nana and you're in a hurumawai, you know, you're blissed out in a heaven-like state, um, then your brainstem comes down and you can afford to evolve and, and develop all of those frontal cortex things which are about attuning to people and stuff, which you don't get to do if you're in a state of anxiety. So usually anxiety is people who have experienced trauma early on and their brain's been automatically set on hyperarousal. So they've gone through their life kind of on hyperarousal and it's harder work for them to access their frontal cortex. Um, but they've all got neuroplasticity. They can all do it if they do meditation and um, yoga seems to be the number one in the literature that actually is the most effective way to change that. Do you do any of that stuff? Yep, I do. Yeah, so, and, but and not as often as I should. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I notice when I do get anxious, um, and I, I get, I, I sort of get a little bit depressed, but I much relate more to anxiety than depression. Right. Um, I notice I don't do the things. So part of being anxious and being depressed and being at the low of your self is that you can have that knowledge, but you don't have the motivation to do it. You don't have the self care or the so, and that, then you find yourself beating yourself up twice as much because I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to be getting you up to make that head knowledge, heart knowledge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Petra Bagist, you were on TV. Yes. Every morning. Yes. Everyone in New Zealand saw you, and then you weren't. What was the learning that you went through? How long have you got, Simon? <laughs> Not too long, I, because, <laughs> because I want to talk to you about your pod and I, life and I, love and well, children. Is, and Yeah, yeah. Um, I was. I loved my last three months on breakfast because I knew I was going to be free at the end of it. Yep. So for me, I was a round peg in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole, whichever way the saying goes. It wasn't a comfortable fit. And that was for a multitude of reasons. When I knew that I could be me again, my last three months of breakfast were good because I started to pull off the shackles of what TVNZ really wanted me to be, which wasn't working. Not for them, not for me. And so I enjoyed that last three months and I left and knew I needed essentially a sabbatical. So I said to my husband, I'm taking six months off Mm. and that's what I did. I literally didn't work for six months. I breathed and I kind of just restored my soul because there had been something profoundly, um, I don't know if diminishing or reducing or sucking, something something about my experience of, of TVNZ's breakfast show that had withdrawn from the bank account of my life in a way that hadn't 
resourced mm. me. It was the highest I'd ever been paid, the most often I'd ever been on telly, um, the most profile I'd had, possibly the most free stuff, but I was the poorest I've ever been. That's how I describe it. Right. I was psychologically and emotionally and physically poor as opposed to being rich. So it was probably that I was in the wrong place. Did you like the free stuff? <laughs> I've always liked the free stuff, Simon Bridges. I'm a New Zealander. We all, we like, all the like the free stuff. stuff. The free stuff usually when comes am I with a get caveat. Some free stuff? Simon, let it go. Oh. You've had you've, how many lunches have you had? Oh, that's terrible. What are you? Are you I making assumptions making, based on no the look of me? No what are you trying to say? Thanks again for listening to this bonus episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, we'll be back very soon with all new episodes and more brilliant guests. If you're following the show on a podcast app, keep an eye on your feed or check www.stuff.co.nz slash generally famous for updates. Thanks as ever to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black. I'm Simon Bridges. Enjoy your summer, Aotearoa. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.